Hi, this is Dr. Bruce L. Spenson, the host of On Becoming. Today we'll be discussing the role that the philosopher Hans Georg Gadamer has had in my life, the influence on both my thought and practice. Before we get into that, I'd like to spend just a few minutes discussing why I make this podcast. Up until recently, I was a full-time professor. If you're a regular listener, you probably know that I've worked at such institutions as Wheaton College, the University of Leuven in Belgium, the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and Union Theological Seminary in New York City. When I started doing this podcast last year, I was expecting it to be just a hobby, basically, but the response has been so overwhelmingly positive that I decided to leave the academy and focus on podcasting full-time. Those of you who've heard my story probably also realize that moving to podcasting means that I can now say what I really think. And you responded very positively. It's so encouraging to see our downloads grow each day and each week, and even more rewarding to hear from listeners, some of whom are even former students from decades ago. Often I hear about the unique challenges listeners have faced in the evangelical world. I am no stranger to many of these challenges. The sad fact is that even in 2023, figures like Bill Gothard have power and sway and new threats like the brigade of bigots at the Daily Wire have sprung up, spreading their own brand of hate-infused with Christianity. I feel strongly that one of the reasons that this podcast is successful is that not only do we provide criticism of figures like Matt Walsh or Bill Guthrie, but we also show up new path forward, a path that takes at face value the claim that God is love. It's important to realize that what figures like Guthrie and Walsh do is create a world for their listeners, but their world is kind of dark, where there are threats everywhere, and the only way to counter them is by hatred or violence or further circling of the wagons. The title of our podcast, Unbecoming, comes from Nietzsche's life motto, Become Who You Are. As beings who are constantly changing, we are always developing. And as beings who are fundamentally social and relational, those who are around us, both physically and digitally, have a profound effect on how we change. The real danger of people like Bill Gothard and Matt Walsh is that they take the most bigoted aspects of conservative Christianity and supercharge them. Rather than making people less dogmatic and more open to inquiry, they close the world of their followers and make them far more dogmatic and sheltered. If you buy into the rhetoric that takes place on their programs, you stop developing. You become static, frozen in a world where darkness is constantly closing in and threats lurk just around the next corner. I invite you to take a different path. Like Walsh and Gothard, I'm trying to create a world, but one where the spirit of charity is a greater power than the spirit of evil. The only thing that can truly fight radical hate is radical love. I was convinced of this long ago, but my experiences both in academia and more generally have made it clear to me that the fundamental choice really is between love and hate. Jesus invites us to love our enemies, which is truly subversive of the order of hatred. Well, what is happening right now is incredibly dangerous. It seems like every day a new story emerges about some conservative Christian branch tending more towards theocracy and further from the teachings of Jesus. The best and most Christian response is to be willing to forgive and to offer a path for redemption. But until we get such a point, we need to put up a fight. 
but not with hatred. We need to argue against hate by way of love. We need to call bad theology and bigoted philosophy out for what it is, and yet also show that good theology and better, more thoughtful philosophy can show us a path forward. In short, we need to continue what I've been attempting to do on this podcast. Perhaps at this point you're wondering how you can get involved. I'm really looking to build a community with this podcast. So, as I've said before, I want to hear from you. Maybe that would just be a short note to let me know that you're listening. Or could be a lengthy critique of a recent or past episode, or something in between. I've received some letters from you that have so gladdened my heart. At the same time, the kind of world-building that we're trying to do doesn't always come cheap. You may have noticed that our podcast is very carefully edited and recorded. Not only is the recording equipment and editing software pricey, but this is not my full-time job. I no longer have the stable income of a university professor. So if you can, would you consider helping us build this community? If you find the podcast helpful to your own journey of becoming please consider following or subscribing to the podcast. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or at paypal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Let me add one more thing. I've recently been invited to give a talk at this year's Theology Beer Camp in Springfield, Missouri. The dates are October 19 through 21, 2023. In case you're wondering, this is like a casual conference in which people who do podcasts related to theology get together, which is why it's titled The God Pods Strike Back. But the reality is, it's open to everyone. There will be talks by noted scholars and the opportunity to meet people with very similar questions to ones that you probably have. If you're interested, and you think you might want to attend, keep in mind that you can use the promo code BRUCEGODPOD. Again, that's always weird for me (laughs) to see my name and God put together. Anyway, that's something for you to consider. The description of those that are invited is that of theology nerd. Only you can decide if that's you. I'm pretty sure I qualify as a theology nerd, though my own way to theology has been through philosophy. I was educated to believe the usual idea that philosophy and theology are just two different things. I no longer think that's the case, even if there are important differences between the two. Today I want to turn to a brief account of the principal insights that Gadamer provides in his major work, Truth and Method. But my account is not going to be merely a description. Instead, I want to explain how I discovered Gadamer, how that discovery led to studying with him, and how Gadamer has changed the lives of my students. I was close to finishing my BA when I took a course that was otherwise unremarkable. Part of the reading for the course included a review written by Jürgen Habermas of Truth and Method. It opened my eyes in ways that they had never been opened before. Years ago, people spoke of the Gadamer-Habermas debate. In short, Habermas, who is still alive, maintains that we can transcend individual traditions and arrive at a common point for communication, a discourse free of all presuppositions, free of any cultural or ethnic distinctions, and thus universal and open to all. In this respect, Habermas is a true modern, since he thinks that rationality can be purified of any traces of tradition. In short, we can escape from the past. 
Gautama, on the other hand, believes that we bring our traditions with us wherever we go. There isn't any real possibility of an actual escape from tradition. But Gautama is saying something so much stronger and more important than that. Namely, our traditions make us who we are. They shape and mold us in so many ways that we usually don't even much notice them. They are often like water for a fish. We can expand upon our traditions by learning about other traditions and even incorporating things from other traditions into our own. In fact, we do this all the time. We can question our traditions, but note that we normally do so by appealing to another part of our traditions. Martin Luther did this by focusing on what he thought was the message of Romans, that we were saved by grace and not works. In other words, he drew on the biblical tradition to argue that indulgences were simply contrary to the message of the gospel. Put otherwise, he basically said, you can't buy your way into heaven. Martin Luther King Jr. did the same when he pointed out the aspirations for freedom enshrined in the Declaration of Independence were possible for white Americans, but not for black Americans. Do you see the point? Both of them used the tradition to argue the current practices, in both cases, were out of line with the founding documents of their own traditions. If you consider the culture wars, they are all based on various ideas that come either directly from the Bible or else are inferred from the Bible. And that's true on both sides of these arguments. When I speak of tradition, I mean a number of things. All of us grew up somewhere. For me, that meant multiple somewheres since we moved about every four years. One benefit of moving was that I became acquainted with a wide variety of ways from being in places like California, Illinois, and Texas. If you live outside of the U.S., you might be tempted to think that all 50 states are more or less the same. Well, that isn't true. While Americans have many commonalities, there are significant differences between life, say, in California and Texas. And where exactly in either California or Texas you're located would also involve significant differences. Another aspect of a tradition is one's mother tongue. I grew up speaking English, which is a huge boon in one sense. English is the closest thing we have to a common language. But the drawback, of course, is that when you have a mother tongue that's as common as that, there's very little incentive to learn other languages. If you do take the time to learn other languages, you discover that they reflect different ways of thinking and being. Each language comes with its own tradition. The poet Goethe says that one lives another life for each language one speaks. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Another part of our tradition is our religion or lack of religion. Of course, already within the world of Christendom, there are so many different variants. I pointed out before that evangelicals tend to think they have a lock on the Christian truth. That's truly unfortunate, for it means that they usually assume that evangelicals are right and all the other folks in Christendom are wrong. One virtue of being an Episcopalian is that you would never think that your church was the one true church. After all, the Anglican church is the result of Henry VIII wanting a divorce and the Pope refusing to grant him one. In effect, Henry decided to nationalize the church, which gave us the Church of England. Not exactly the kind of founding of a church about which you could be really proud. 
However, once you discover that no Christian group has something like the magic formula, you can open your eyes and ears to other ways of thinking and interpreting the Bible. The first part of Truth and Method is designed to establish something very important. While we even today tend to privilege scientific ways of knowing, Gadamer reminds us that our most basic knowledge of the world has nothing to do with science at all. Instead, as human beings, we're connected to the world in the most practical ways. Aristotle used the term phronesis, or practical wisdom, the kind of wisdom or knowledge that you need to brush your teeth or bake a cake or drive a car. This kind of knowledge is sometimes referred to as the sort of thing you need to have in order to get around in the world. Of course, once you realize that this practical knowledge is the most basic human knowledge, then you realize that all theory, science, or philosophy is based upon this more practical, basic sort of knowledge. One reason for the title of the book is that ever since Descartes, at least, there's been a search for the proper method to understand the world. Gadamer's point is that human beings got along just fine before the idea that you first needed the right method. In other words, we've all been relating to the world for millennia, long before the need for method became any kind of concern. Indeed, the first hundred pages or so of Truth and Method is an exposition of all the ways in which we operate quite apart from any method. But Gadamer insists that these ways get us truth, even though it's the kind of truth that doesn't neatly fall into the category of method. For instance, he discusses the role of tact in knowing and being. At this point in time, the word tact is largely seen as something to do with an appropriate sensibility for a given situation. That is, the tactful person knows how to speak to others in a calm and rational manner. If you have tact, you are able to encounter a new and different situation on the basis of your previous experience. But there's no method for tact. The only way to learn about tact is to watch and listen to someone, preferably lots of someone, who's tactful. And these could be your parents or your teachers or friends or leaders in your community. We often think of politicians or ambassadors to foreign countries as needing tact. But everyone needs it since we're all connecting with various people in various communities on a daily basis. Another thing I learned from Gadamer was that interpreting, something we do all the time, usually without thinking about it, is key to making sense of the world. Put another way, we don't ever encounter the world apart from interpretation, which means that there would be never a way to escape from or to overcome interpretation. It's just how we human beings relate to the world. I don't think this is bad or worrisome. It's just what it means to be human. But once you realize that, you realize that the evangelical interpretations are also interpretations. There isn't anything that isn't interpreted. Upon reaching that point, I was able to stand back and think about the interpretation of things that I had been taught. Growing up, I was taught what I now consider to be a pretty simplistic conception of the world. I mentioned before that my father was able to dialogue with people with whom he disagreed. So that helped me see, at least partly through the simplistic version, in which we were the only ones who had the truth. Since it would never be possible to skip over interpretation, I came to realize that all the versions of Christianity represented different interpretations of the Bible and the tradition that came with it. But that realization led to a further realization that the Protestant emphasis known as sola scriptura, 
that all their interpretations are based solely on Scripture isn't quite correct. It just doesn't work like that. In the Roman Catholic tradition, there's a recognition that Scripture doesn't interpret itself, which is why the magisterium exists. Thus, tradition is constituted by the ways in which we, our community, interpret something. There is no formal magisterium in evangelicalism, but there are still various leaders whose views shape how the rest of us interpret the Bible. Let me try to make this point by way of music rather than religion. When I first started working on writing a phenomenology of music, I spent some time with one of the very few texts in the tradition that had been written about music. As I thought about what was going on in the text, I came to see that it was problematic for various reasons. One reason is that, according to the author, his name is Ingard, in case you want to look it up, the composer sets down the basic contours of musical composition, and the role of the musician is basically to follow those contours as closely as possible. My first criticism of this view was, it didn't work like that in jazz, or rock, or reggae, or for that matter, most other musical traditions. In other words, what Ingarden had to say really only applied to what we call classical music, which means it wasn't actually a phenomenology of music, but at best, a phenomenology of one particular sort of music. Further, the very fact that it focused merely on one sort of music had its basis in the assumption that classical music is somehow superior to all other forms of music. Just to be clear, aestheticians, that is, people who study art, have long assumed the superiority of classical music over all other sorts of music. That has changed at this point because it's an indefensible position. But then I came to realize that Ingarn's view was far too mechanical even for classical music. One reason is simply that however much a composer might try to communicate what he or she intended for how a piece of music should sound, there are always many things that couldn't be written down. And instead were the very things one, as a performer, brings to the text. Yes, in order to perform a piece of music, you need to know a whole lot of stuff that isn't to be found in the score. Because of that point, I ended up spending a year in Freiburg in order to study with the guy who was seen as the expert on what's called performance practice. That's the ways in which pieces of classical music have been formed over the centuries. The basic assumption had long been something like musical apostolic succession. If you study with X and he studied with Y, who had studied with A, who had studied with B, who had studied with Beethoven, then you were playing Beethoven just as Beethoven had always been performed. Yet that assumption is no longer taken very seriously, for it presumes that every person in this change had all been thinking and performing exactly the same way. There's very little reason to think that this is the case, Though with music, the problem is that recordings of music only became possible a little more than a century ago, and thus we really don't know what Beethoven's pieces sounded like when they were first played. Another way of putting this was that the whole idea of an historically appropriate performance was put into serious question. We simply don't know how these pieces were played originally. One of the most famous musicians in the historical performance movement was Christopher Hogwood, but in an interview in a scholarly journal, he admitted that most of the things that they were doing as historically accurate, they made up as they went along. To be sure, if you use instruments that are literally from that period or made based on period specifications, you are probably much closer to the original sound. 
put in practical terms, if you play Bach's Goldberg variations on a harpsichord, you are closer to Bach than if you play them on a modern piano. But one question that remained was this. Are historical performances necessarily better than modern performances? And if so, better in what sense? To argue that this is what the composer wanted is problematic in that Bach didn't have a modern piano available. Would he have wanted to play them on a piano if that had been available? You can make whatever claim you like, but do you have anything to back it up? It's really hard to make the case that one is superior to the others in any absolute sense. Igor Stravinsky was one of the most demanding composers who complained about performers taking liberties with his pieces, and he was really not happy with that. But he left us five different versions of the Rite of Spring that he conducted or played, and they all sound different. As to Bach, we can try them on a harpsichord or on a modern piano and listen to how they sound. Fortunately, we can perform them either way and then the next night perform them another way. One reason for telling this story is that if you go back to scripture, we immediately realize that no one knows exactly what an ancient author meant and even less about how that author's original readers would have interpreted. This is why Gadamer insists that we have to focus on the text itself. I first read Gadamer under the tutelage of Professor John Salehammer, who wasn't a philosopher but an Old Testament scholar who had read and understood Gadamer. He encouraged his Old Testament students to focus on the text rather than spending so much time reading about all the background information. I should add that during the period that he was teaching this way of reading the Old Testament, a whole lot of students who would have never been interested in studying the Old Testament suddenly got very excited and decided to do a master's degree in Old Testament. Evangelicals, perhaps even now, think that with enough study of the original languages and archaeological discoveries, we can put ourselves in the place of the Church of Rome to which Paul was writing. Once you read Gadamer, though, you realize that such a goal makes no sense at all. We cannot be ancient Romans reading the Bible in Greek. We can be contemporary Americans or Canadians reading the Bible in Greek, but that still doesn't put us in the original context. And the vast majority of Christians simply don't know Koine Greek, so they can only read the text in translation. We can only understand as we understand. When you realize this, the Bible opens up in a new way. Since going back to the original context is impossible, one considers that context to whatever extent it's possible, but then also considers the context in which we live now. Because reading the Bible as the original readers might have read it would be very impractical for us. We don't live back then, and so our interpretations must be in light of our own context. There is no way around this. There's no time machine that could take us back. And even more important, there's no culture machine that could make us into first century Romans. And if there were such a machine, it would literally change you into somebody else. In other words, you wouldn't be you anymore. Gautama makes a point about art that once you understand it, you think very differently. The point is that all art is unfinished. He's not talking about Schubert's famed unfinished symphony or even the pieces of art that the artist clearly didn't get around to completing. By the way, it's usually been assumed that Beethoven's pieces were perfect as written. However, we now know that he was dissatisfied with many of his pieces and never got around to fixing them because he was just too busy with other projects. 
So the assumption, this is what Beethoven really wanted, is problematic. In any case, Gadamer means that when we look or listen to art, we become part of that art in the sense that our interpretations of it become a part of that art. Consider the painting, the Mona Lisa, perhaps the most famous painting in the world, and it's largely famous because it was stolen, but that's a story for another episode. Among my favorite photographs are one I've taken not of the Mona Lisa, but of the crowds trying to get close to it. I was just watching something on Netflix and involved people taking a trip to Paris and the Louvre for the first time. One of the people in the group says something like, so that's a thing that's so famous? It's hideous. Now, that's not exactly the judgment I would make, but you can see that the Mona Lisa can't be stripped down to a bunch of paint on canvas. It's so much more than that. It lives on in songs, like the one called Mona Lisa, and the work of Marcel Duchamp, who added a mustache in 1919. But even in 2023, we are still in the process of interpreting and reinterpreting it. On Gadamer's view, the Mona Lisa is unfinished because we are still interpreting it. In this same way, all works of art are like music. They need to be performed. Going to the Louvre and it Examining the Mona Lisa is one way that such performances take place, though you can look at a high-quality reproduction in order to get a similar, but perhaps not identical, experience. The painting is thought to have been done between 1503 and 1519, which means that it's 400 years later that Duchamp adds the mustache, which is now over a century ago. Who knows how the Mona Lisa will be interpreted by future artists and everyone else? Put another way, Gadamer is setting up the dynamics of interaction by first considering artistic objects. From there, he goes on to show us that these dynamics are found in anything we interpret. In this sense, the Bible is never finished. In fact, I think you can argue that the more important something is, the less finished it is. Because important ancient works of art philosophical treatises and religious texts are constantly being interpreted in new ways. While I have decidedly mixed feelings about the Reformation, all of the groups that arose in its wake make clear that the Bible can be interpreted in very different ways, depending on which parts you emphasize. I don't think this is either good or bad. Instead, it is just what happens with a rich, multi-layered text that has far more meaning in it than can be reduced to a single narrow thought. Gadamer's metaphor for how we meet the past is what he calls the fusion of horizons. We are in our horizon. By the way, that's actually a technical term in phenomenology, and we can't leave it. However, we can read and understand ancient texts in our own way, which is far better since we live here and now. Gadamer is not saying that understanding authors from other eras is impossible. He's just saying that we can only do so from the perspective of our own traditions. This same is true when we visit other countries. You can visit Paris and see it for yourself, but you can't become a born and bred Parisian, even if you get French citizenship and live there for the rest of your life. I remember a funny story about a Dutchman who moves to France. After a year, he writes back and says he's getting the hang of the language. After five years, he writes that he's totally fluent. After 20 years, he writes, I'm never going to master this language. But not mastering a language is okay, since there are many degrees of proficiency short of total mastery. English is my mother tongue, and yet I suspect I still haven't mastered it either. 
and probably never will. But I'm not too worried about that. Why? Because language isn't something you own. It existed long before you or I came on the scene, and it will keep on going long after you or I have left. At best, we participate in language. It's something available to all of us, and no one owns it. You probably know that the English language has by far the most words of any language in the world. That doesn't make English particularly special, but it does show that speakers of English have been willing to adopt words from other languages, to make up new words, and to come up with lots of new meanings for old words. From my point of view, that willingness to adopt and adapt makes the language dynamic and flexible. But I need to stop there. I will have more to say about Gautama in the next episode. If you found today's episode helpful or interesting, consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com at onbecomingpodcast or through paypal.com or the PayPal app. The username for both of them is our email address, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can just follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us for our next discussion of Gautamar.